Good morning. Good morning. Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, it is truly good to be here with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Travell, and I have been a member here at Redeemer for about the last eight years. And... Um, on occasion, uh, the elders allow me to stand before you and share the word, which is my task this morning. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter number two. We're going to be looking in Luke chapter number two this morning, and um, we're going to camp out there. Luke chapter two, and we'll take a look at some verses there. And while you're finding your way there, um, allow me to just say a word of prayer for our time together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we can come together as a people um, and worship you in the beauty of holiness. Father, we, as we come to this preaching moment, we pray that you would give us attentive ears and listening hearts, that we would receive the engrafted word of God that is able to save our souls. Pray that you would draw us closer to you, that our affection would be much stronger for you through the hearing of your word. And it is always our prayer, Father, that you, by the Spirit of God, would use the word of God to reveal unto us the Son of God. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Luke chapter number two, we'll camp out there. And so while uh, we consider that, I want to um, consider a question for just a second here. Um, this is a time of year where many people around the world will be giving gifts, right? We think about giving gifts uh, during this time, specifically on the 25th of uh, the Christmas Day. Um, gifts will be shared between you and your loved ones. You're going to be giving gifts sometimes from underneath the tree or from stockings or however you and your family decide to do that. And uh, Certain people may want certain things uh, during this time, and you may get them or you may not get them. And uh, but as I thought about the giving of gifts, um, I thought this morning that we could ask you a very important question. And the question is: If God could give the world a gift, what would be the greatest gift that He could give? If God could give the greatest gift to the world, what would be that that he would give? And I suspect that if you were to go out into the streets and you were to ask that question to uh, people on the streets, I believe you would get all kinds of answers. Uh, someone may say, um, give me, uh, God could give me a winning lottery ticket, right? I have a lot of bills that could really help, especially during this time of the year. Um, that could be something. Someone may say that... Um, God could give me a family, right? I really want a family. That could be a great gift that God could give, and that, that would be a good one. But I would suspect that if you were to ask this question to many people on the street, you would often hear uh, people would say, the greatest gift that God could give is world peace, right? We're just tired and weary of this world and the wickedness that happens in this world, and world peace would be the greatest thing that God could give. Well, there's good news this morning. God has indeed given the world a gift, and that gift is peace. He has given peace to the world. Now, it may not come in the way that we expect it to come, but God has indeed given that gift. And because that's what the world needs, we need peace. 
There's wars and murders. There's political upheaval. And there's a lack of peace all around. And for many of us, there's a lack of peace within. And there's an emptiness that we feel, a shame or a fear or whatever it may be. And, well, God in the lack of peace that we feel in this world, has sent his son Jesus as the very incarnation of peace. And so the great gift of peace is Jesus to this weary world. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at this text. This is going to be our big idea that our sermon in a sentence will be this, is that Jesus is the good news of great joy for all people. Jesus is the good news of great joy for all people. Jesus is the great gift of God. He is the good news of great joy for all people. And so this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. We're actually going to start at the top of the chapter. So we're going to go from verse 1 all the way down to verse 20. And we'll look at it in two sections this morning. First, the first seven verses, verses 1 through 7, we'll look at that. And we'll see that Jesus is good news. Jesus is good news. That'll be verses 1 through 7. And then in chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, we'll see that that good news brings great joy for all people. That God's good news brings great joy for all people. So let's start here in chapter 2, verse 1. And just to catch you up really quickly to where we are in the story, um, What we see here is that we find in the book of Luke at this point, there has been prophecies about two, uh, the birth of two babies. The first would that be of uh, John the Baptist, who was the promised forerunner of the Messiah. And then we've seen a promise to Mary, who is a little farm girl from Nazareth. And this young girl who is engaged, as we would call it, or betrothed, as the text says, uh, and she's betrothed to a guy named Joseph. And she is going to, they have not come together yet, but she is going to give birth to a son. And he wouldn't just be any son, he would be the Messiah. He would be the very son of God. And so that's where we pick up our story here in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read. Jesus is good news, verse 1. And in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when um, Kynaris was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered to each his own town. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed or engaged as we would know it today, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so Luke here, who is the author of this gospel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is a historian. And so what he's doing is he's linking together uh, a, a other historical events that happen around this time. And so we see that happening. He mentions in verse one, Caesar Augustus. This is a guy by the name of Octavian. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And he was known as the emperor of peace because he brought about an end to about a hundred year civil war that was happening in this region. And he was viewed by many to be a god and as to be one who is to be worshipped. And this is, in fact, how all Caesars were to be viewed. And so this 
Caesar Augustus, he calls together a census uh, where everyone from in the Roman Empire were to go back to their hometowns and their home regions, and they were to collect and register their names and their properties and their income. And this was all going to be done for tax purposes. And well, and we see in verse 2 that this was done at a time where there was a particular governor in place who was of Syria. And uh, the reason that this happens is very, very, very important. The Caesar has his own particular reasons for doing this, uh, whether it's he wanted to uh, count how many people were in his kingdom or if he just purely wanted to do this for tax purposes. He had a reason. But there is another bigger, grander, greater reason that all of this is happening. And this is happening because God has a plan. And one of the things that you learn from reading the Bible is that God is sovereign. He is in complete and total control over all of the affairs of heaven and earth. Uh, Proverbs 21 verse 1 says it this way. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water that is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. God is the sovereign orchestrator of all the events in history. And he is orchestrating even the events in this scene to bring about his own purposes. And through the lens of the Bible, we understand that all events, everything that happens, even the things that we may call accidental events or coincidences, that they are all divine destiny. That there is a divine author and he is working all things out according to his own plan. And there's many examples that we can give to this, but you can probably look at your own life and see how God has strung together so many things in, that led you to where you are today, even to this very moment where you're sitting now. And if you look back on your life and you take a good fine pen to look, you can see that there is no such thing as luck or chance in God's universe. That God is a sovereign God who has orchestrated even the smallest things to bring you unto himself. And whether that be in your own life or even in the life of this Caesar, we see that God is ruling over everything. And little does Caesar Augustus know is that he is just acting as an instrument in the hand of God, not so that the Caesar can be exalted, but that Christ may be exalted. He is just paving a way for the exaltation of the true Prince of Peace, the one who is really God, the one who is actually good news for the world. And in verses 4 and 5, we see that Mary and Joseph, they travel there about 90 miles from where they are in Nazareth uh, to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is just a little town about seven miles southwest of Jerusalem. And a lot of times when we read this story in storybooks, um, we read it to our kids, we get this picture of Joseph walking, right, as Mary is riding side saddle on a donkey. Well, none of that is actually here in the text, and so we really just don't know. That's what we have to say. We don't know. Um, they're probably not taking a train or riding a Segway to get there, right? Those things don't exist. But... We know that we don't know how they got there. She's probably writing something down there, uh, considering the fact that she's very much with child at this time. But another thing that is not mentioned in our text is when this happened. So did this all happen in December? 
I'm sorry, y'all, we just don't know, that we really don't know. The earliest recording of evidence of someone attributing the birth of Jesus to the December time frame, particularly December 25th, is in 336 A.D., and the reason that this is instituted is instituted as a means to fight against pagan worship. The pagans at that time were worshiping uh, the, the summer solstice. They were worshiping the God of the sun. And so what they did was the Christians got together and said, we will come together and make our own traditions uh, to fight against the traditions of the sun. While they worship the sun, we will worship the actual true son of God. And so that's what it is. And so the question is, you may be wondering, is December 25th Jesus' birthday? I don't know. And truthfully, it does not matter. And that's okay. We can celebrate on that day, and that does not make you a pagan. It's absolutely fine. Jesus was still born, and we can still celebrate on that day. Um, one of the things that we need to know is that if God wanted to make that a big deal, then God would have made it a big deal. There are many places in the Bible where God gives us dates and times that we are supposed to remember. This is not one of them. Now, there are some other details here that we do need to know. Notice that Mary was betrothed, which means that she was engaged to a guy named Joseph. Uh, this was a legal form of engagement. It was more serious than the way that we think about uh, marriage engagements in our day and time. But we notice here that she is with the child. But Mary and Joseph have not come together yet, uh, so this was just a picture of the, the fulfillment of what the angel had already prophesied to her, that Mary would become miraculously pregnant, and that in her womb, she would bear the very Son of God. And so we also see that they're coming from Nazareth down to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now... Bethlehem was originally a Canaanite city, and it was named after a fertility god at that time. And so what we see is in Joseph, uh, Joshua chapter 12, we see that the Hebrews, they come and they conquer this city, and they take it over, and they rename it to be Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. So they changed the name of the city from the house of a God who is supposed to give life, a life giver, through the way of fertility. And then they changed it to house of bread, the house of feasting. And so Bethlehem is also called the city of David. Now, does anyone know why it's called the city of David? It's because it's David's city. It's where David's from. That's why it's called the city of David. Uh, we see that in 1 Samuel chapter 7, that um, David was born to a man named Jesse who was from Bethlehem. This is David's hometown. Uh, and what's more even significant about this city is that there are prophecies that we can see in the Bible, and I want you to turn to one in Micah chapter 5, if you will look with me. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, there's a prophecy about this city, Bethlehem. And so in Micah chapter 5, beginning at verse 2, we see the prophet Micah writing to Bethlehem. It says this, But you, O Bethlehem, from, shall, um, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So he says, there's going to be a ruler who's going to come. He's, he has been everlasting. He's going to come to Bethlehem. He's going to be born there. Verse 3. Therefore, he shall... 
give them up unto the time, and when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and he shall dwell, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, watch verse 5, and he shall be their peace. This is the prophecy about Bethlehem. There will be a peace giver that will come. One whose name will be known to the ends of the earth. One who will be the shepherd of the sheep, uh, who will rule in the power of God, and he will be born there. He will be born a man, a God-man. Well, in verse 6 in our text, Mary and Joseph, they come into time, they come into town, and they get there just in time. Mary was probably very, very happy to arrive because uh, she was very pregnant. So uh, she, her feet must have been tired, swollen, back was aching, right? Uh, we don't know what kind of contractions she may have been having on the way. And so she has to be very glad to be here. And when they hit there in verse 7, there's nowhere for them to go. They have nowhere to go. And so what happens in this particular culture is that typically when you come into town, you just find a place to stay with someone or you go to an inn. And so really, uh, it's not like our day where there's a bunch of inns. There's no like Marriott's or Ritz-Carlton's around every corner for them to go and everything's booked up. There's only one place for them to go and there's no place for them to go. There's no room for them in the inn. And there's probably just one inn there. And so, and their culture is a culture of hospitality. So while they're traveling, they will stay with people, but there's no one for them to stay with. There's no hospitality on this evening for Mary and Joseph. There is no room for them. And so from his very birth, Jesus was met with a world that was very inhospitable to him. Jesus himself says in Matthew 8 that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. And this was true from the very first day that he got here. And there's been a lot of preaching on there's no room in the end, and that's all for good and good reason, but we're not going to spend a lot of time there. Uh, but I do want to pause and pose a question before you that I want to press on you this morning. Have you made room for Jesus? Have you made room for him? And I'm not, when I ask that question, I don't want you to be under the illusion that I'm just talking about have you put him on your New Year's resolution list? I'm not talking about have you put him in your schedule? Have you uh, um, just included him in your life? I'm not talking about have you, are you going to go out and get a Jesus tattoo or get a Jesus bumper sticker? That's not what I'm talking about. Or maybe uh, you think about, I'm just going to start coming to church a little more. Or maybe I'll get one of those little Bibles and I'll read it from time to time and I'll try to read it past Leviticus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about have you made room for him in the way that he says you need to make room for him? Jesus says he wants you to make room for him. And if you want to think about it this way, we can think about it like this. Have you made Jesus a part of your life? And I would say it's much grander than that, but that's one way to think of it. Have you made him a part of your life? Have you actually denied yourself and took up your cross to follow him? That's the kind of room Jesus calls for. He calls for a complete renovation of your heart. 
He wants you to, he wants to come in and swing the gates completely open and for you to give him the keys to your heart and let him have complete and total control and surrender all over to him. He wants to have full reign. He wants you to give him the keys of the crib of your heart and let him in and have complete and total control. That's the kind of room that Jesus requires. Have you made room for him? Verse 7. She was given birth, and it says here she gives birth to her firstborn child. And they wrapped him in swallowing clothes, and they laid him in a manger. Notice that they mentioned that this is her firstborn child. That highlights the fact that she is indeed still a virgin, that she hasn't had children before, that this is her first son. And we would know that Mary would go on and have more children. We see that in the book of John. And what they do is that they wrapped him in swallowing clothes. And swallowing clothes were just uh, strips of cloths that were used to straighten out the child's limbs and to provide warmth for him. And then they laid him in a manger. And if anybody here has the Holman translation, uh, if you're reading from that, it would say that they laid him in a feeding trough. That is a literal translation. That's what a manger is. It is a feeding trough. It's a place where the shepherds would go and they would feed their animals and they would put the food there. And that's what they laid him in. They laid him in a feeding trough. And so in Bethlehem, when you think about this, again, you got to get the scene. So many times we have the, uh, a scene in our mind of a nativity scene. It's like a barn that they're in, but that's not really what's happening here. What happened is in Bethlehem, they have hills everywhere. And in those hills, they have small little caves. And so sometimes the shepherds would shelter there and they would build these little caves and they would put, you know, they make a little house for their livestock. And that's what we think. So that's the scene that I'm trying to lay for you here. Think about that. It's not a barn. They're in a cave, a dark, cold, dusty, smelly cave. The creator has taken on flesh and he's born in a dark, cold, stinky place. And he's born a human. He's taken on flesh. So you got to think about it. He, he's coughing up embryonic fluid. There's mucus in his eyes. He's crying. There's tears falling down his cheek. Whoever wrote Silent Night, great song, bad theology. It was absolutely not a silent night. He was a human. He was a baby. He was crying. And like humans, he did what babies do. He cried. The son of God here, he's lowly. The mightiest from heaven is being nursed by his mother. The Lord of glory has sent to a stable in the fields to be a uh, in a stable or in a cave with a dirty, not a clean place, smelly place. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that he chose a trough for a throne. Think about it. This is the God that will come and dwell among us in this way. Philippians chapter 2 tells us, they describe it in this way. He says, your attitude should be the same as Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, but he, he made himself nothing. He gave up his rights as God, making himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant being made in the likeness of human flesh. Jesus, he descended and he humbled himself. And he was conceived in the womb of a virgin, not some queen, but a little farm girl from a nowhere place. And he was born not in a palace, but in a place of a, where stinky animals camp out in the middle of nowhere, seemingly being forgotten by the world. This 
is the world that Jesus enters. And when you sit back and think about all these things, it's just amazing. It's absolutely amazing, right? Think about it. We have these two posing figures in our text. You have this Caesar who thinks himself to be God. He wants to exalt himself. And then you have who's really just a tool being used in the hands of God to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem in just the right time so that the true king could come and be born as it was being foretold. Then you have Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, born in not a formal way, not in the most ideal way. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and then Jesus would go on and later say that I am the bread of life. He says, if you hunger, you can come and feast on me. He was born in a place of bread, and he is the bread of life. So that he comes into this world. He comes into this world in famine. He comes humble. He humbled himself so that we can come to the table of his grace. This is good news. This is good news of great joy for all people. And that's the first point. Jesus is good news. His announcement of his birth is good news. Point number two. This good news is great joy for all people. Look at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and, this field, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a shepherd, a savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been made known to told to them considering the, concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things in her heart, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all that he had heard and seen, what had been told to them. So in the same region, which is it's probably about two miles outside of Bethlehem, there are fields and there's these shepherds in the field. And these shepherds are, they're pulling the graveyard shift, right? It's in the middle of the night and they're hanging out at night. They're watching over their flock. And in verse nine, all of a sudden, glory comes out of nowhere. Light in the middle of their darkness. It shine all around them. And the Greek word for this, it gives us a picture that it's complete Utter blinding light. They're encompassed by the light. This light shone all around them. So get the scene here. They're in the middle of the dark, in the middle of the night. All they see are the stars and the skies, and they're with their animals, and they hear the sounds of nature. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's a spotlight from heaven on them. And this is amazing because this spotlight is coming from the Lord of glory. And all this time, they're, they're in the middle of the dark, and then just a blinding light comes to them in the form of an angel. 
And think about this. They were filled with fear. 500 years before this, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 10, the Bible says that God's glory departed from his people. And about 100 years after that, God's last prophet Malachi had prophesied. And so up until this point, for 400 years, there was silence from heaven. There was nothing. There was no promises. There was no prophecies until now. And the coming of these angels, and we see them, the same thing that happened to Zechariah. It comes in the same thing that happened to Mary. Now it's happening to these shepherds. The curtain of heaven is open somehow, and God's glory shines out onto the small hillside there and among these shepherds. And what do they feel about this? Fear. Trembling. I'm talking knee-shaking trembles. Literally filled with great fear, which makes sense, right? They're in the middle of the night. It's dark. There's just animals around, and all of a sudden, boom, light comes out. Shining around them. And there's some shining angelic figure coming out of the sky. That's crazy. And they're filled with fear. And the angels, they come as a warrior of light. Shining all around them. This is terrifying. But what does the angel say in verse 10? Fear not. Fear not. And this is the same message that the angels had to Zechariah and to Mary when they prophesied to her. Fear not. Do not be afraid. I come in peace, says the angel. I bring you good news. It's the same word that we get our word gospel from. I bring you gospel. I bring you good news of joy. And Luke wants you to know that this is not some small joy. This is a great joy. This is not a fleeting joy, but this is an everlasting joy because it's not tied to our circumstance, but rather it's tied to God himself. And this is the kind of joy that we get. And one of Satan's tricks is to tempt you to believe that you can have joy, that you can't find joy in the things that God prescribes to us. That you can only find joy in the things that God forbids from us. Did God really say? God is holding out on you. This is what the, Satan wants us to believe. He wants to tempt our hearts whether or not to believe that God really has our best interest in mind. And this is why we need to stay vigilant and sober-minded and pray for soberness. Because our joy should not be tied to things, especially in this season. Our joy should not be tied to money or power or affirmation or whatever it may be. One of Satan's great aims is to tempt you to believe that joy can only be found in the things that are in this life and not in Christ himself. But here in this text, we find a trustworthy angel who comes to tell us otherwise. And what is this good news that he's bringing? Verse 11, he tells us that the good news is a child. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And he will be a sign for you, and you shall find a baby wrapped in swallowing clothes and lying in a manger. Now notice here, the good news is unto you. The good news is unto you. It's unto these shepherds. It is a personal gift from heaven given unto you. It's for, and it's not only for you, but it's for all people. 
It's not just for them, the shepherds. It was for all people. It's not just for the Jews or the Romans or the Samaritans or, or it's not just for Africans or Asians or Europeans or Americans. This is not just good news for the poor or for the rich. This is not just good news for the young or the old or for a male or for a female. This is not just good news. It's good news for everyone. It is not just good news for the rich and the famous or for the forgotten. It is good news for everyone. This good news is unto you. And to all people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, this is the good news that comes unto you. And when does it come unto you? This day. And who did the Lord choose to reveal this to first? He chose to reveal this to shepherds. Think about shepherds. Lowly, humble shepherds. Not philosophers, not kings, not priests, not scholars, but rather Shepherds, humble, lowly, God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. These angels says, this good news is happening to you this day. This gift was given on this day. And I love that because this is a historical account. This is not a fairy tale. This day was planned from eternity past. And the earth in one sense has all been coming up until this very day. This is a real event that happened on a real day and is happening unto you. And I mean, think about it. Our entire calendar is based off the approximate time of the birth of Jesus. All of history is looking forward to his birth and now all of modern history is looking back toward it. Everything is leading up to this. Approximately uh, 2,023 years ago, approximately Jesus was born on a real day and real time, not a fairy tale. And why is this so important? Because he's our savior. And the Old Testament prophesied about it, and the New Testament continues to point us back to it. This is God's mission. He sends his son to rescue us from our enemies, to rescue us from our sins. This is the meaning of Jesus' very name. His name means Yahweh saves. He is a savior. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one that will come to deliver us. He is Lord. He has the authority to reign. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He is the Messiah King. And we see this prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, and a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. This is why he's called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He will never be overthrown. He will never be impeached. And this is good news. This is good news and it will bring great joy for all people. And oh, these shepherds here, they hear this and they see the angels and then they see the one angel and then all of a sudden, it's as if a host of the curtains of heavens open back up and a multitude of angels are singing God's praise they just pop out of nowhere and they're all of a sudden a multitude is singing the praise they're saying verse 14 glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased and one of my favorite observations about angels is about how they feel about this Jesus guy 
In Isaiah chapter 6, we see a picture of Isaiah going up into the throne room of God. And he's in the throne room of God. He enters and he sees these angelic figures with their face covered and their, their feet covered and they're flying. And all they're doing all day long is saying, holy, holy, holy. And that was approximately 700 years before Jesus comes. And John chapter 8 tells us that the angels are singing about Jesus. And then you fast forward into eternity future, and we see in the book of Revelations another scene around the throne of God, and these angels are flying and singing all day long, holy, holy, holy. Thousands of years, the angels are bugging out about this Jesus guy. They are absolutely amazed. God is holy, and I love that when I think about the angels, because the angels marvel at what God does for us. The angels marvel. They spend all their time in the presence of a holy God, pure, absolute holiness. And then that God would look on us and want to rescue us. They marvel at that. They've seen fallen angels, and what do those fallen angels get? Absolutely condemnation, nothing else. But for us, he gives mercy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 tells us that the angels look on this. They marvel at this. The angels love to see from heaven God saving sinners. The angels love to see God awakening us from our sin to his glorious Savior, bringing regeneration, bringing forth new life, having us to trust and to turn and believe in him and then becoming the children of God. The angels love this. They're absolutely amazed and their light is shining from heaven down on them. See the picture. It's what happens in salvation. Utter darkness and God's light shines in the middle of that bringing good news. That's what he does for us. And this is the result when God goes back to heaven. We see him. In Christ, God gives glory by saving us. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. And because of it, he is worthy of our highest honor and our highest praise and love and devotion and obedience. We see glory ascending and we see God descending peace. God gives peace. And this is a message for all people. And I want you to see the distinction. This is a message for all people, but not all people will receive this peace. The good news goes out so that all can hear the good news, that this is good news and it brings great joy. Jesus is a savior. There's life in him. There's forgiveness in him. Praise God. But who can partake in this? Who can know God's peace? It's with whom God is pleased. So the question then is how is God pleased? The question also is, how can we be pleased with God? Or how can God be pleased with us? And the answer is, receive this child. This Jesus who came and grew to be a man and lived a sinless life, a life that none of us could ever think or imagine to live who then willingly and joyfully gave up his life on the cross and died and shed his blood to take the judgment that we so rightly deserved. We were once enemies of God, but Christ took our judgment. And then he rose from the dead, bringing reconciliation 
so that enemies can now be made friends of God. And this peace is extended, a peace that was purchased by the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. God, gift to the earth, is a peacemaker. God gives peace. So, what does the world need? We need peace, yes. But more than peace, we need there to be peace between earth and heaven. And Jesus brings just that. And what is the right response? The only right response, verse 15. They say, let's go and see him. Let's go find him. Let's go tell of this good news. And that's exactly what they do. They go and tell of the good news. And we see in verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, and it was told to them. So a couple of things to note as we close. As we're told, this is how salvation works. It's a savior. He comes. He provides. He offers peace. And we receive it. And so you may be here today, and you may feel the probing of God tugging on your heart. You may be asking some questions. Is this real? Is God real? Is this a fairy tale? Is this just some made up? And it is our job of those of us who know the Lord and call ourselves Christians. It is our job to do just as the shepherds do and to go and tell them. That's our job. Go and tell. You can believe too. You can receive this peace, a lasting peace. David says in Psalms 23, verse 4, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. How can David have that kind of peace? The verse tells us the only way that we can have real lasting peace is because God is with us. Go and tell them. Tell the world. And when they go, this is what the shepherds do. They go and they tell and they see Joseph and Mary, and they see this happening in the ministry of Jesus, and they tell everybody about it. And they're praising God. That's the first response. Go and tell. The second response is to praise God. Great is the Lord, and greatly is he to be praised. This is our job. We are to tell weary souls that there is rest for their souls. And we praise God because it's given us great joy because we've received it ourselves. And as we see here, the shepherds go, and they're praising God, and they're rejoicing. And this is what the gift of God's great peace will do for us. It would fill us with a lasting joy that would cause us to praise God. This is just a picture of heaven. We see the curtains of heaven opened up in our text, and we see what we will get to see in heaven. What we will experience there. And if you think heaven will be dull and stale, you need to read the Bible again. One thing that you see about our God as you read throughout the entirety of scriptures is that our God loves a party. He loves the party. He loves a fiesta. That's what he does. And that's what it will be like in heaven. And we get to preview that for those in the world so they can come and receive this great joy as well. And so if you're here today and you don't know yourself to be a Christian, I would invite you to press in. To come today unto you this day a Savior is born. Press in, partake of this great joy. Find this great peace today.
And if you're here today and you know yourself to be a Christian, I implore you to be just like the shepherds. Go and tell the world. This is our job. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for you sending your son, that he condescended, that he humbled himself so that he could save us. He entered into this world, lived a sinless life, died on the cross and rose again so that we can have salvation. Lord, help us as we're searching for peace during this time. Help us to find it in you because you're the only place where we can find everlasting peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.